1: Over the past few months, Britain has really put on a show. I'm, of course, talking about the swell of patriotism surrounding the Queen's Jubilee. It's been amazing. <laughs> what a spectacular finale! As
2: well,
3: now England's women's team is nailing it in the Euros,
2: and, the rebound is in, and, hundred... and we even came second in Eurovision.
4: Two, United Kingdom.
1: If you were watching from abroad, everything seemed sunny. But the reality is much darker.
3: The UK has one of the highest rates of inflation in the Western world.
4: It's a very, very difficult place for us to be in. I mean, to predict and to forecast 10% inflation and then say, uh, and there's not a lot we
5: can do, about 80% of it.
2: Workers are striking across
1: the country. Interest rates are climbing. And there are fears of recession.
4: Interest rates hit their highest level since 2009, as the Bank of England hints there could be more increases ahead. The bank has raised interest rates to 1.25% as it tries to dampen down inflation.
3: There's mounting pressure on the public finances. And a chronic growth problem.
1: Storm clouds are brewing. You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the market, the economy and the world of business. I'm Samaya Keynes.
2: I'm Mike Bird.
1: I'm Alice Forward. And in today's show, we'll look at the consequences of Britain's growth crisis and how to end it.
5: The way to solve that is the big problem. It's quite easy to diagnose and very, very hard to solve. We'll first ask how much
3: of the current political chaos is really about economics, And we'll also talk about tax cuts.
6: The history of tax cuts leading to, in the short term, improvements in output and productivity is is not a terribly optimistic one.
2: And we'll explore the long-run pressure on
7: the government's finances, which will make any tax cuts harder to afford. We probably could have done better in these years because we've known we've had a productivity problem for quite some time now.
1: Finally, we'll outline just what needs to happen to get Britain growing again. Hi, Mike and Alice. Hi, Samir. Hello. So, how did you both get the news that Boris Johnson was going to resign?
3: Well, I was excited to be in the UK for once. Uh, I usually have to watch the political chaos from a distance. and It's nice to be here and see it sort of closer to first hand.
2: I found out when I woke up and first thing, checked on Money Talks WhatsApp group, uh, which is not just a source of memes, also breaking political news. Samia, how has all the chaos been for you?
1: Oh, you know, calm, relaxing, but, but actually kind of depressing because... As the leadership candidates are being grilled by MPs on their attitude to the culture wars, I've been watching all this political chaos through the lens of this really big project that the Britain section is doing on the country's growth crisis, or sometimes how I like to refer to it, 10 reasons Britain is bad. Sounds like fun.
2: But... Is the UK really that special? You know, if you're thinking about problems like high inflation, worries about recession, etc., then, you know, you can join the club. People are worrying about the same stuff in America and the rest of Europe.
1: I think Britain is actually special. A few weeks ago, we put the country as a tortoise on the cover and we wrote about how it has been stuck in a 15-year rut, So ever since the mid-2000s, Britain has been falling behind America and Germany, and it's falling behind after it started out behind those countries.
3: Yeah, it seems like there is something particularly wrong with the UK. And over the 2010s, a lot of countries had a difficult time. But yeah, Britain has had a really tough time.
2: Yeah, one of our American colleagues loves to remind me that Britain is poorer in income per capita terms than Mississippi. Still, We are going to hear about how all of these sort of big structural issues have contributed to the UK's more recent sort of political crises, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. This episode is going to cover Britain's long run growth problems. But I thought we'd start there, Alice, by talking to my boss and The Economist's Britain editor, Andrew Palmer, about how much economics has contributed to the political chaos. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Hi, Sumeya. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay. So much of the past couple of weeks has been about scandal, lying, high politics, etc. What is the 30-second version of what brought down Boris?
5: 30 seconds. Um, Well, character is really a big part of it rather than economics. So here's a prime minister who consistently lied, uh, who obfuscated, who was caught up in scandal after scandal, and that over time eroded support for him among Tory MPs, but also with the public. So worries about his electability uh, became more and more accentuated and eventually brought him down. But at the same time, there was a backdrop of economic worry, a cost of living crisis that was also becoming more and more uh, prevalent on the doorstep and in conversations about electability.
1: I suppose... The the moment, though, that really made me think, aha, this, this is about economics, was, was that first couple of resignations, or, or really that one specific resignation of Rishi Sunak, the, the Chancellor, who in his resignation letter said that he was just too far away from the Prime Minister in their approach to the economy, which seems to be signalling a disagreement over, over tax cuts. How did that look from where you were sitting?
5: Yeah, you're you're totally right. Those disagreements have now sort of erupted into the open with the leadership race. So you see tons and tons of candidates talking about tax cuts as the way both to boost growth and to help households out, whereas Mr. Sunak continues to uh, be skeptical of that as a way out of things is talking about the need to be grown up to get a grip on inflation before you start to think about tax cuts. I doubt those policy disagreements would have led to resignations, falls of prime ministers without all of the other stuff around character as well.
1: Yeah, I think it might also be worth just spelling out what's underlying this problem to do with with tax cuts, right? The context is that Rishi Sunak, the Johnson government, had presided over several very large tax increases or announcements that taxes would be increasing. And that goes against this image that the Conservative Party has of itself of this low-tax party. But obviously, the underlying problem here is that growth is, is terrible. And if you want to maintain a certain level of public services, if you don't want to cut benefits, and if you don't want to raise borrowing, then you need to raise taxes. There isn't really a way around it. So when it comes to this this big underlying problem, this growth issue, you've been leading the charge of this big project that the the Britain section is doing on, on Britain's lack of growth. What are the major components of that project? What are the, what are the big problems?
5: I mean, we have this long run growth and productivity challenge. It's not a new challenge. People have known about it, but it's been brought into focus um, by the fact that the economy is stuttering, that everyone feels poorer and is, is poorer because of inflation. The way to solve that is the big problem. It's quite easy to diagnose and very, very hard to solve. The components of it seem to be relatively well absorbed. We don't invest enough in Britain. We have a problem with um, skills and the matching of employees and uh, employers. Uh, we have problem with diffusion of innovation. So there, there are lots of areas to tackle. I suppose there's also a set of political constraints that we ought to think about in the British context, Brexit being one but not the only one. So Ma, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there definitely are some very hard political constraints. You know, one is around Brexit. You know, my main reaction is just how all of the political chaos is really contributing to the the economic problem. So you have this this problem in the the late 2010s that all the uncertainty over Brexit was really holding back investment, preventing businesses from from making decisions. Now, the lasting political questions over Brexit means that that uncertainty is still there. I think also the the fear is that with a new government new administration, a new set of priorities, they rip up all of the the plans that have been made and and start in a whole set of new ones to do with you know growth, industrial policy leveling up, so on and so forth and so it just becomes impossible to tell what works and what hasn't worked either because it's a terrible idea or it just hasn't been in place for, for long enough. Andrew, can I ask you what you make of the race to replace Boris? Do, do you think the candidates are stepping up to this enormous challenge that, that the economy and the country has?
5: So far, absolutely not. I mean, it is early days. And I suppose we, we should caveat this with you know, people are trying to jostle their way into the final two but broadly speaking, we have a large number of candidates making promises about unfunded tax cuts, sort of saying growth, but then magicking it up with tax cuts, refusing to reconcile the needs to kind of appeal to that traditional Tory value base of low taxes, fiscal discipline, and the fact that high spending is kind of baked into their electoral appeal to the north of the country, to the red wall seats as they're, as they're known plus secular pressures uh, on higher healthcare and social care spending. So no one has yet grappled with with that detail.
1: Yeah, I'm really torn between irritation that the candidates haven't announced more details in their policies and then also fear that if they do announce those detailed policies they'll be terrible policies. So yeah, I think on balance silence is is maybe better, uh, but it's it's very unclear.
5: Well, also, the honest answer to this is that these are really deep problems that require long-term solutions. They're trying to win a battle over the summer to become the next prime minister. Uh, But for the sake of citizens of of Britain, you want them to be thinking about the agenda that takes them through the next election in 2024 and the following five-year term.
1: Absolutely. Long-term thinking is something I would like to see more of. And it's something that we have on this podcast because we are going to hear again from you at the end of this episode.
5: Looking forward to it.
2: American listeners might be a bit confused hearing all of this excited talk about policy. But it's worth remembering that the parliamentary system gives British politicians the power to actually change things. The Prime Minister has majority control over the legislative body, which is not always the case with Congress in America.
3: Yeah, things are pretty centralised, and the Conservatives have a pretty significant majority in Parliament. So they can raise and cut taxes if they want to. They could set the pay for teachers, healthcare workers, other public sector workers, with a lot more power than you would see in the US.
1: Yeah, but they can't do whatever they want. However, you know, in theory, the government has fiscal rules which limit borrowing for non-investment and also debt. But more importantly, in practice, Boris Johnson's successor is going to face some nasty fiscal realities.
6: My name is David Miles. I'm a professor of economics at Imperial College London and also a member of the Budget Responsibility Committee at the Office for Budget Responsibility.
1: My first question is, how healthy are Britain's public finances right now?
6: Well, the finances right now are in some ways in a better position than many people had expected. I think that includes the OBR itself. A couple of years ago, financial year 2020-2021, during the worst parts of the COVID crisis, the fiscal deficit was very close to 12% of GDP in that year. It's still the case that there's a fiscal deficit. The government is having to borrow because it's spending more on the current budget than it's raising in tax revenue. But the size of that deficit is relatively small.
1: We're hearing now a lot of discussion about proposed tax cuts. Looking at the numbers and and the fiscal limits that the government has set itself on, on borrowing and debt, how much room is there to cut taxes and still meet those targets?
6: Well, a couple of months ago, the OBR produced a forecast and on its central projection under policies as they were then, the chances were slightly above 50% that you could hit the government's fiscal targets, which is to balance the current budget. And on the central forecast, there was headroom of about 1% of GDP. In other words, the current budget could be a little bit in surplus And the stock of debt could be falling relative to GDP by a small amount a couple of years down the road. But that amount of headroom, given the uncertainties and the volatility in the economy, even in ordinary times, is really pretty small.
1: One of the arguments that we're hearing now is that the government should be focusing on growth. It should be focusing on growth and cutting taxes would help with that. It would make the economic outlook rosier. What do you make of that argument?
6: If you think about where the current fiscal targets are, they are set for where's the economy going to be two or three years down the road, it would be rather optimistic to expect tax cuts now to have a very substantial impact on productivity and output over that sort of time horizon. Though it's, of course, conceivable that some tax changes over a longer horizon might might well boost productivity.
1: Right. Right. Could you now talk a little bit about the longer term challenges that the government is facing with its debt and and borrowing outlook?
6: In the UK, the population will age. The proportion of the population above, let's say, 70 years of age is going to rise very substantially, probably over the next several decades. It's already been rising. That puts pressure on expenditure, on healthcare in particular, It also means that the proportion of the population that will be of that working age group will fairly steadily decline. And that generates a double squeeze on expenditure on the one hand and on tax revenues on the other. A couple of other factors as well, which play out likely over the long, long term. One is that one can't really expect interest rates to stay as low as they have been for last several years and the government has a large stock of debt and that increases government spending on on the interest on the debt and there are some factors that'll play out over the next 20 years very plausibly for example a loss in what is quite a substantial source of tax revenue on fuel duty on on cars people buying petrol and diesel as sales of those cars decline very sharply now you put all that lot together And what it means is that it's quite likely that as you look not beyond just the next 10 or 20 years, but 30, 40, 50, 60 years into the future, unless something changes in terms of retirement ages or spending on health or the tax system, then we're probably on a trajectory where fiscal deficits begin to get bigger and the stock of debt rises steadily relative to GDP.
1: David, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thank you.
3: So I always find this kind of depressing because I'm used to still mentally living in the world where you're thinking about the UK in the 2010s and you think to yourself, you know, there probably is a bit of a free lunch there. The UK could spend more. Interest rates are very low. There's still slack in the economy. There's still room to do things. And now we seem to live in a world where actually these decisions all have much larger, more obvious trade-off. So yeah, this is all sort of classic money talks misery to me.
2: Yeah. And I thought the point David was making about how rising interest rates are going to constrain governments first um, is really interesting and important. You know, we've talked before about how households and companies have refinanced a lot of their debt to be low interest rate long term. And so they'll be kind of insulated from higher interest rates. Um, But Governments are in a very different position. And this is a point that my colleague Henry Kerr has written about extensively in an excellent piece in this week's issue.
1: Fiscal constraints are real then, but of course, everything is made easier. You can have lower borrowing, lower taxes as a share of the economy if the economy is bigger. And after the break, we're going to look at what's been holding back the economy, what's been holding back British growth.
3: It's a pretty complex issue, and I don't think you'll ever really understand it if you don't read all of the Economist series on Britain's growth crisis. And to read the entire series, you are going to need a subscription.
2: Yes, and the series is going to be continuing all year, so there's even more of an incentive to subscribe and stay subscribed. You can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. That link is in the notes for this episode. And if reading and listening to The Economist isn't enough to fulfil all of your needs, then you should consider signing up for our newly launched educational course.
3: Yes, if you like Money Talks, you might be interested in our new six-week online course on fintech and the future of finance.
1: You will learn about everything from cryptocurrencies to the payments revolution, all of which will help you figure out just where finance is heading.
2: It was put together and contributed to by myself and other people you hear on the show, the finance writers at The Economist.
3: So sign up and enjoy a special discount as a Money Talks listener. If you go to economist.com slash future of finance and enter the discount code moneytalks at the checkout.
0: Here's a cool fact.
2: So Britain's economic challenges definitely predate the pandemic. They predate Boris Johnson and Brexit. One big problem is Britain's poor productivity growth. And productivity growth drives overall economic growth. It means that people are making more for a given hour of work.
1: To get some ideas for how to fix the problem, I spoke with Anna Valero from the Centre for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. If you were to identify the main sources, if you were to try to break it down, what would you point to as as the kind of underlying or or the the more specific problems, deeper than productivity growth?
7: So the underlying drivers of productivity are really investment in the type of assets that are enhancing productivity. So in order to increase that, we can increase worker skills. And we've had chronic underinvestment in capital investment in the UK. And then the other thing is really innovation. So the way we combine inputs to produce output. We know that certain measures of innovation that we can actually measure, such as R&D, which is a typical measure of innovation input, our spending on R&D is lower as a share of GDP than our main comparators. So we know there are lots of areas where we can do better in terms of investing. And those things, based on the evidence, if we do better on them, we should be able to raise our productivity.
1: How easy is this problem? Is it just that we haven't,
7: paid enough attention to it? Or, you know, are, th- are there quick fixes out there? Well, I think it's a really difficult problem in the sense that lots of these investments are long term investments. I mean, think about skills. If an individual invests in their skills, it takes a while to start seeing that pay off in their wages. And it's similar in the economy. If we start making investments through our schooling system, through our higher education system in skills, we're not going to immediately necessarily see the improvement in productivity. But the same with infrastructure. Projects tend to be quite long term. There are lots of planning obstacles, other things that need to be um, sorted out before those plans for investment translate into the improved productivity. And the same with innovation. All the stages from going from a new idea to actually commercialising that into a product that is deployed through the economy can take a while. But having said that, I think we probably could have done better in these years because we've known we've had a productivity problem for quite some time now. There have been various plans and strategies seeking to address it, but unfortunately we haven't necessarily had much longevity in those types of plans and strategies. Right, so one contributor has been all
1: this political chopping and changing, all this chaos has actually been contributing to our failure to to solve this problem. Should we think about investment, first of all? If you were government for a day, how would you try to solve this problem of chronic underinvestment?
7: There are various areas there where we know that we need to invest more to improve connectivity between cities or within cities, to address congestion in city centres, etc. So, We've, we've made major steps there in terms of having a National Infrastructure Commission and better processes around actually thinking about the needs of the UK and how to deliver them. And of course, now there's a levelling up agenda, which is looking much more at kind of spatial aspects of this and more infrastructure investment outside of London as well. If we're talking about capital investment in firms, there are a number of barriers to investment in firms and financing constraints tend to be one. So difficulties accessing finance, even when a business wants to make investments, for example. When we talk about ICT adoption, digital technologies, financing constraints, also reorganisation costs, it can often be quite disruptive to make those changes, and often skills constraints. So there's an interrelatedness between these different um, areas. Often if businesses don't have appropriately skilled managers or workers, it makes it harder to invest in productivity-enhancing technologies within the business.
1: You just mentioned skills, so let's now look at that in, in depth. What is Britain's specific problem with
7: skills and how would you fix that? I think the UK has actually done very well when you look at how the educational attainment at the top. So the share of people with tertiary education, for example, has gone up. But we know that where we're not doing very well is in technical and vocational education, where we haven't seen much of a rise in that share. So I think we we need to make sure that that sector is funded appropriately given the challenges we face. I also think there are issues in terms of the allocation of talent We know, for example, that children from disadvantaged backgrounds tend to underperform through the education system. This can mean you can have people whose true potential isn't realised in the labour market. And there are also issues. Childcare costs are very high in the UK. There are issues in terms of women who are doing very well through the education system and in their early careers then stepping back from their careers. And of course, this could be someone's choice, but there might be cases where there are constraints to women working when they actually want to work because of the way our system is organised with regards to childcare.
1: Can we talk now about innovation and, and business dynamism? That seems like one problem that Britain has. How would you even start to try and fix that?
7: Yeah, so innovation is a really interesting story for the UK because we have a lot of excellence in our innovation system. The the typical quote is we punch above our weight in terms of the quality of the research that comes out of the UK. What we're less good at then is commercialising that. And so you can see it in the sense we have lots of really promising, innovative startups, but we're less good at that scale-up phase. So I think there are issues in terms of how can we commercialise our ideas here in the UK and keep the growth and the employment benefits here in the UK A lot of that comes down to improving collaboration, perhaps, through better incentives for researchers and businesses to collaborate. It comes down to ensuring that the finance options are there for firms that seek to grow. Great. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It
1: was great to talk to you. Obviously, I, I don't want to understate how difficult it can be to implement fixes for all of this. One thing that Britain seems to really have struggled with is bad management practices in, in smaller, less productive firms. The government identified this; it launched a scheme to provide heavily subsidised training for for those businesses. But so far, it seems like one of the main issues is that companies just aren't interested in taking it up. Policy solutions sometimes just aren't easy mike alice reactions ideas of your own
3: yeah so i was interested in the the mentions of infrastructure there i'm currently in, in what i believe is still western europe's largest city without a, a proper public transport infrastructure that is leeds home of the the abandoned leeds super tram act of 1993 abandoned by successive governments you know i'm, I'm not making this a sort of an economist campaign, but but we might want to look at that. And, and infrastructure, of course, outside of London and, and around the country in general.
1: One of the things that Anna mentioned in our conversation was that innovative startups were launching, but then struggling to scale.
3: When we're talking about tech startups, they're the sort of future of the economy companies. Policymakers would absolutely kill to have the next Amazon or Google start on their turf. And if you can get those small innovative companies to grow, they can compete with the big incumbents and make them do better.
2: Yeah, and business dynamism, or the ability of great companies to grow, is really important. And it's something that Britain seems to struggle with. Our colleague Joshua Roberts, the economist, city and finance correspondent, has been following this closely.
8: And CDR. CDR and the entire crew is go. OK, Scooter,
5: look,
2: it's a great day to go fly.
4: When it comes to starting companies, Britain excels. It has a vibrant venture capital scene and lots of investors with money to throw at people with good ideas. That includes people like Anne Glover, founder and CEO of tech venture capital group Amadeus Capital Partners.
8: Enjoy the ride, pal. Our entrepreneurs attract international capital very successfully.
4: Novel check of the SRBs. This seed money is the fuel needed to turn an idea into a business.
8: T-10. They now need double digit millions, sometimes triple digit millions of capital to grow to the next phase.
4: But move up the scale, companies that are looking for funding of $15 million or more, and Britain, we have a problem. The money dries up.
8: There are not enough, hardly any, growth stage investors who are domiciled in the UK and helping the company from here and helping them stay here.
4: The rocket fuel needed to launch these companies into the stratosphere just isn't there.
8: Why? You've got to have significant ambition from the beginning to become a global leader and that means that you're going to have to incur losses for many years. Now they're not losses, they are investments in making a global company, but there are not many investors at this later stage who understand how to evaluate a company which is growing very fast and is still loss-making.
9: So, what's going wrong? My name's Dom Hallis. I'm the executive director of the Coalition for a Digital Economy, or CODEC for short, and we're a lobby group for tech startups in the UK.
4: Dom puts the problem down, in large part, to the behaviour of British pension
9: funds. Traditionally, there's been a huge problem of pension funds in particular not deploying into these kind of investments. So you have sort of in the US, a significant portion of venture capital comes from US-based pension funds and institutional capital. And in the UK, pension funds aren't doing the same. They're just more small-c conservative, right? And like that's the thing that we find the hardest. It's sort of quite often painted as these are risky things, but if you look at the data over the past 15 years, like the evidence is that this would have returned substantially more to these funds than the alternatives, which they've chosen, were literally saying to funds, please make more money. <laughs> and they're saying, no, thank you.
4: The risk aversion means missed opportunities.
9: One of the jokes in the tech sector is the real beneficiaries of the past 10 years of technology booming in the UK have been teachers in Ontario, because the reality is that like, the Ontario Teachers Fund has been the one who's been deploying a lot of this capital. And like, that's just, that's just silly. In the last
4: decade, the UK's had two massive missed opportunities. Big tech trailblazers who've been snapped up by foreign owners.
9: All right, everyone. Welcome to DeepMind. We are embarking on what will turn out to be the greatest adventure in human scientific history.
4: DeepMind is an artificial intelligence company that was founded in London. In 2014, it was bought by Google for $500 million. November 1990. Arm begins as a small team of engineers working out of a Cambridge barn. Two years later, there was Arm. The company becomes profitable in 1996. The chip designer's technology powers nearly all smartphones. Within months of its listing on the London Stock Exchange and Nasdaq in 1998, Arm is worth a billion dollars. But 18 years after it was listed, the company was bought by the Japanese conglomerate SoftBank for $32 billion. It's now set to relist but with a primary listing in America. So whether it's public or private, the UK has a problem with keeping hold of its most promising companies. Dom Hallis has been pushing the UK government to help fix the problem.
9: The government has been pursuing reforms to what's called the pension charge cap, which is one of the big challenges because it limits the amount that pension funds can pay in fees to have their money managed. Um, And obviously venture capital is a much more active management structure than other forms of management of capital, and so does require higher fees in order to work, and that's been a, a challenge under the cap, and so they are looking at that closely.
4: The British government is also looking at reforms to how insurance firms can invest their assets and it recently tweaked listing rules at the London Stock Exchange to make it more hospitable for tech companies. But for Anne Glover, there needs to be big change, fast.
8: We have such exciting technology coming through. If we don't sort this funding gap out in the next five years, it will be financed by foreign capital, research will go elsewhere, and the belief in research and innovation being the engine of the economy will dissipate and
1: that would be a crying shame. Just to be clear here, the problem is not that foreign investors are making returns from British companies that British investors are then losing out on. The, the real underlying problem as it relates to growth is that there are lots of firms that don't get noticed by foreign investors. And, and it's those firms that aren't superstars like ARM or, or DeepMind that don't get to grow. Alice, how does this look from your side of the pond
2: It's interesting to hear that it's not that the seeds of those great superstar companies aren't, they don't exist in Britain or in the rest of Europe. It's just that they struggle to achieve that kind of scale and growth potential that seems to be much easier for companies that are based in the U.S.,
3: there's a lot of Asian countries where the equity markets are dominated by these fairly stodgy conglomerates and you don't get interesting new companies coming through. But then you get places where they they really do. You know, some parts of East Asia, you get interesting companies coming out of Korea and China and Taiwan. So, yeah, it, it's a bit of a blend.
1: Now, there are lots of problems with growth in Britain and lots of ideas to help fix them. I want to bring Andrew back to see whether they could actually happen. We're about to have a new government after all, and growth has been part of the campaign. Andrew, welcome back. Now, thinking about these really big economic structural issues, how hopeful are you that they can be fixed?
5: Uh. I'm sure that they can be addressed and improved. I suppose the question underlying the question is whether this government or the incoming government can address them. So far, um, the evidence on that score is pretty unconvincing.
1: If you were pitching yourself as the pro-growth candidate uh, to be the next prime minister, let's let's say that some freak of nature has happened. We're, we're the the radical centrist party rather than conservative the Conservative Party. What would be your platform, your your long-term thinking platform?
5: I can't imagine a less electable party, actually, Sumer. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say I'd say in the very short term, don't make things worse. We're in the middle of something very dramatic in the British economy with high inflation, a currency that looks vulnerable, high current account deficit, et cetera, et cetera. And there are ways in which the incoming administration can make things worse. So a you know, big row with the EU over... Northern Ireland, rapid tax cuts that fuel inflation, all of those things will actually make things worse. So that's, I guess that's job one, don't worsen things. And then the long term pitch is something that I think you and I are going to have to uh, work out and talk about in, in more detail in our cabinet discussions. But it is almost certainly going to involve ways to make it easier to build infrastructure and housing in Britain, ways to fund vocational education Uh, ways to encourage people to come into Britain from the EU without reawakening um, the Brexit dragons. All of those things, I suspect, are going to be part of our our programme. And with that, we can seize power for decades.
1: Great. Andrew, thank you so much. Thanks, Samir. Look, I try to stay upbeat when thinking about my own patch, but it's really difficult here.
3: Yeah, I think it's got to the stage where, sort of looking quite a bit at Japan's economy, where someone talks about the last decades, and I no longer really know which country they're talking about. I don't know whether you're talking about the UK or Japan. So I sort of alternate on both between optimism and pessimism. Uh, On the one hand, if we could just fix some of these things, you could get on such a better growth path. And on the more pessimistic side, it's been a very long time in both countries' cases now. And and what's been left at the side of the road, what's been lost, what could have been, basically.
2: If you're looking for sort of the thinnest of silver linings, though, I guess, sure, America has all those sort of whizzy tech companies, but that's not been very great for investors this year. And the FTSE, filled with old, stodgy utilities and oil companies, is only down about 3%, whereas the s and is down about 20. So sure, you might have lost decades of growth, but at least your portfolio was doing all right this year.
1: <laughs> Alice, that's the kind of positive thinking that I need right now. Um, should we turn to our stats of the week? Yes, please. Yes, let's.
2: My stat of the week is 47%. So almost half of households in Idaho have two fridges. That means that Idaho is the American state with the most second fridges of the entire nation. And I was very intrigued by this. So I sort of tried to do a little bit of research into why this is. And apparently well, the best explanation on Twitter anyway, is that Idaho is a prepper state and you can't call yourself a survivalist unless you have two fridges. (laughs) Just stunned silence.
3: Yeah. Um, We will move on to my statistic of the week, which is 11 trillion. It's 11 trillion Vietnamese dong. That is the level of investment that is being funneled into Ho Chi Minh City Airport. Now, you might have struggled with American or European airports this year. The good news is you're not going to struggle if you go to Vietnam anytime soon because Ho Chi Minh City Airport is expanding so it can accommodate 45 million passengers a year. Bottom line, if you're planning a holiday for any time after September 2024, plan it for Vietnam.
2: What is the uh, dong dollar exchange rate?
3: It, it's just short of half a billion US
1: Okay, I think that means it's my turn and my stat of the week is £1 billion, which is how much a dog licence might raise, about £100 per dog, if one was reintroduced into the UK. Um, So David Miles actually brought this up after our conversation this week. He alerted me to the fact that Britain has already had a dog license and it was particularly remarkable as a tax because it started off at seven shillings and sixpence. And then for the next 120 years, it was not changed in its nominal value. And so by the end, it was worth 37p when it was finally abolished in 1987. I don't think David Miles was actually serious about this particular proposal. He did email me later to clarify that he thought dogs were really great.
2: I think that's all for this week. Our thanks go to David Miles, Anna Valero, Anne Glover and Dom Hallis.
1: Thanks to our colleagues Andrew Palmer and Joshua Roberts.
3: And thank you for listening to Money Talks.
1: Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And send me your favourite stats at podcasts at economist.com.
2: If you like the show, you should also sign up for our Money Talks newsletter at economist.com slash newsletters.
3: This week's show was made by Marie Keyworth, Stevie Hertz and Kim Gittelson. Our sound engineer is Nico Raufaust.
1: I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Simea Keynes. And this is The Economist.